Open your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew chapter 5. We continue our study through this book. We're actually in that portion called the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus, uh, in chapters 5, 6, and 7, preaches to the crowd on the hillside. We look today at verses 27 to 30. In his book, Sex and the Eye World, Dale Cooney, a professor at St. Anselm College and a minister in the Evangelical Covenant Church, made this startling statement. The impact of the sexual revolution on the Christian community is enormous. As the culture has deviated from the traditional understanding of sexual ethics and marriage, so have Christians. In fact, there is good reason to believe the sexual revolution has more profoundly impacted the behavior of 21st century Christians than has the Bible. In terms of the sheer quantity of adultery, fornication, use of pornography, little difference can be found between the sexual behavior of Christians and that of non-Christians in the United States. Brothers and sisters, we need to listen to what Jesus has to say to us this morning in this text. Let me read it, Matthew 5, 27. You have heard it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. I think what Jesus says here uh, divides into two parts. The first verse and then the rest of the, uh, or the first two verses, 27, 28, and then verses 29 and 30. The first point is this then. God hates our secret sin. God hates our secret sin. Last week you saw how the scribes and Pharisees limited the requirement of the law to the most narrow definition. One was not guilty of murder unless he actually pulled the trigger and shot the person and he died. Other than that, it wasn't murder. Today we learned that in a similar way, they thought one was not guilty of adultery unless he actually committed the act of sexual intercourse with another man's wife. John Stott explains, in their view, they and their pupils kept the seventh commandment, provided that they avoided the act of adultery itself. They thus gave a conveniently narrow definition of sexual sin and a conveniently broad definition of sexual purity. Now, this seems to be an obvious manipulation of the commandment, but today people do the same thing. Artificially limit the scope of the commandment against adultery in order to justify their behavior. So attitudes such as these abound even in Christian circles. We might hear someone say, well, sex is okay if it's a meaningful relationship. Or if it's between two consulting adults, it's nobody's business. Or perhaps, it would be wrong 
to use people and hurt them, but as long as everyone understands that this is just a casual thing, it's not necessarily wrong. Then there's a situational ethics approach. What really matters is that we act in a loving way. And sometimes sex might be the loving thing to do, even if you're not married. Or perhaps this, adultery would be wrong, that is, sex with somebody else's spouse. But sex between single people would be okay. I had a young college student in my church in New Jersey that wanted to argue that point with me. And more recently, sexual intercourse would be wrong, but other forms of sexual gratification are okay. This is the Bill Clinton argument. Is it a sexual relationship? Well, it depends on what the meaning of is is. This is what the Pharisees did. They limited the sin of adultery to the precise act itself in the narrowest sense. And we have learned to do that too. To limit the sin of adultery to include only sexual activities with bad motives. But when we do that, we're kidding ourselves. We're playing fast and loose with God's law. God means what he says, even if no one else believes it. So in contrast with the scribes and Pharisees, in in our text this morning, Jesus sets forth a much more rigorous standard in regard to this commandment. Listen again to verse 28. But I tell you, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus hates even the hidden desires deep in our heart. He condemns our secret lusting. So what's the difference between looking and lusting? When is looking all right and when does it become wrong? Well, appreciation of beauty is not evil. God made some things beautiful. To acknowledge that, to thank him is all right. But it's the desire to possess for myself that gets into coveting. The desire for illicit sexual relationship, the look that in itself brings sexual gratification or sexual arousal, what Peter later called and accused the false teachers of having eyes full of adultery. Those things are sin. Or, or the desire for sexual intimacy, which is disconnected from loving the one who is my spouse. That's sin. God made sex for marriage. To desire some other kind of sex is outside of God's purposes. But what exactly is wrong with lusting? I mean, nobody knows. Nobody sees. What difference does it make? Well, first, it's rebellion against God's plan for us. It's to want something that God forbids. It's then an expression of discontentment with the situation that God has given me. It's not good enough, God. And God sees it, by the way, whether anyone else does or not. Furthermore, it defames the one I am looking at, whether he or she knows it or not. 
It reduces a living person made in God's image to a piece of meat that I want to consume for my fleshly pleasure. That falls way short of loving your neighbor. Certainly it's not how I'd want someone that I love to be viewed. You see, no matter how secret it might be, God hates our hidden sin, our lustful looking and longing. Oh, but it's even more serious than that. Listen to Colossians 3, 5, and 6. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Notice the relationship between the things on that list. Here we have the fruit traced back to its root. The fruit is sexual immorality, a broad word for all sexual sin. But the lust is back on that list of things uh, that, that describe where that immorality comes from. Lust, evil, desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Jesus does not just forbid the ultimate fruit. He forbids, forbids the, fruit, the roots that lead to that fruit. And in this Colossians text, we learn that the ultimate root of lust and immorality is idolatry. Greed, which is idolatry. It's making sexual gratification our God. It's believing that good sex can satisfy my soul. That sexual pleasure is the ultimate good, the ultimate comfort in life and in death. That experiencing satisfying sex is the chief end of man, the goal of our lives. No, no. No wonder the prophets of old use adultery as a metaphor for idolatry. They're related. No matter how diligently we keep our lusting a secret, God forbids this hidden sin. Now, there have always been things which stirred up hidden lust. Books with explicit plots and language that stirred up desire. Movies and television programs filled with sexual innuendo and impure talk and provocative images. Those have been around for years. In fact, I remember many years ago, I think when my daughter was in college, I commented that a certain movie, I'd heard a certain movie was good, and I thought maybe I would try to see it. I almost never go to see a movie. And her response was immediate and was very clear. Dad, don't waste your time. It's a two-hour glorification of adultery. Sexual enticement has been around a long time. But nothing could have prepared us for the, what internet pornography has now brought to feed our lusts. It's so convenient. You don't have to face the embarrassment of going to the store and asking for a Playboy magazine. You can get it in secrecy. Better yet, you can get it for free. Porn is available 24-7 to anyone of any age who has access to a computer. But it's not harmless entertainment. It is more explicit than printed pornography could ever be. Every conceivable perversion can now be viewed in high-definition video. 
Worse yet, it's addictive. Morton Bennett, citing a recent study of what pornography does to the brain, calls it the new narcotic. He writes, neurological research has revealed that the effect of internet pornography on the human brain is just as potent, if not more so, than the addictive chemical substances such as cocaine or heroin. It appears, we now learn, that pornography physically affects the brain in a manner similar to those illegal chemical substances. It literally changes the brain, creating neurological pathways that then require pornography in order to get to their desired sensations. Which means that all sexual matters from then on will be will have uh, subjected to the expectation formed by pornography, which is the death knell of normal human sexual relation. And to make matters worse, there are 1.9 million cocaine users in the United States. There are about 2 million um, heroin users, though not that many so active. But there are 40 million regular users of online pornography. Which, be, which means, if the studies are correct, that among children aged 8 to 16, 90% have viewed online pornography. 80% of 15 to 17-year-olds have viewed hardcore porn multiple times. The average age at which a kid is first exposed to this pornography is 11 years old. And if the studies are right, about half of Christian men and a third of Christian women have struggled with this problem. Make no mistake, this sin may be hidden in secret, but it is serious, and God hates it. Of course, the problem is that secret sins don't remain hidden. Looking plus lusting leads to sinful actions. The root begins to produce the fruit. Like the proverb says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So what do we do? Brings us to our second point. Do not allow any part of your body to serve sin. Do not allow any part of your body, your eyes, your hands, your feet, any part of your body to serve sin. That's the simplest I can make it for you kids. You adults have to deal with the stark language Jesus used. If your right hand causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for one to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. We know from church history that Origen of Alexandria, a third century Christian scholar who went to extremes of asceticism and renouncing possessions and food and even sleep. And in an over-literal interpretation of this passage, actually made himself a eunuch, castrated himself. 
So is that what Jesus is recommending to us? The people who struggle with a lustful heart? Indeed, would there be anything wrong with doing that? Well, it certainly violates the implications of the command not to kill. If it's wrong to kill, it's wrong to kill yourself. It's wrong, if it's wrong to kill yourself, it's wrong to mutilate your body. In fact, in AD 325, shortly after Origen's self-castration, the Council of Nicaea condemned this practice as an unbiblical practice. Plus, the truth is that literally cutting off part of your body doesn't solve the problem. The problem with sexual immorality is found in the heart. It's not in the eyes or the hand or the glands. One could be blind and lame and impotent and still have a heart full of lusting, filled with sexual fantasy, which grieves the Lord. You see, Jesus was clearly speaking uh, in hyperbole, that, that figure of speech, which intentionally exaggerates for the sake of emphasis. But the fact that he speaks that way should cause us to sit up and take notice. So what was Jesus recommending to us when he says that, those hard things? <laughs> well, he was not recommending mutilation. He was recommending what the Bible elsewhere calls mortification. Putting to death those sinful bodily things that will drag you into destruction. Do not allow any part of your body to serve sin. Let me just uh, run through a few of the passages that define what that mortification of the flesh is like. Mark uh, 8, 34, he calls, Jesus calls a crowd to him along with his disciples. He says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross, that is, embrace his own death, and follow me. Self-denial mortification of the flesh. Romans 6, verse 11 to 13. Consider yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any of the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God. Offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. Romans 8, 12 and 13. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Mortification. Of the flesh. Do not allow any part of your body to serve sin. Galatians 5.24. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Finally, Colossians 3.5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature... Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Throughout the New Testament, mortification means taking up the cross, denying my flesh, denying my flesh any nurture or any opportunity, 
intentionally starving to death the desires of my sinful flesh. These days there are very different attitudes about sex than even one generation ago. Nowadays sex is viewed as just another human need. We need food and water. We need shelter and warmth. We need self-esteem. And we need sexual gratification. It's just another hunger that came with the package. Therefore, just as it would be absurd for people to think they could go any length of time without uh, food or water, so um, it is thought to be absurd for people to think that there could be a normal, healthy human uh, life while suppressing the natural hunger for sexual gratification. In other words, this is no longer considered a moral issue. Indeed, for many, abstinence from sex is not even a reasonable option. It's insanity. But Jesus' words are different. According to him, it is not only possible to live without sex. It would be better to live for the rest of your life without sex. Or even without your eyes or without your hands than to perish in hell. In other words, even if you say that sex is an essential human need, Jesus says eternal life is more essential. Think about it. If cancer were killing you, you would not hesitate to take radical steps to stop it. Even amputating an arm or amputating a leg. Well, Jesus is calling us to have just as radical a commitment to self-denial in those areas which threaten our souls. He's calling us to be just as merciless with our sinful flesh. John Stott put it this way. If your eye causes you to sin because temptation comes through your eyes, pluck out your eyes. That is, don't look. Behave as if you had actually plucked out your eyes and flung them away and were now blind so that you could not see the objects which previously caused you to lust. He goes on, again, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin because temptation comes to you through your hands and things you do or your feet, the places you go, then cut them off. That is, don't do it, don't go. Behave as if you had actually cut off your hands and feet and were now crippled and could not do the things and go the places which previously caused you to sin. That's what Jesus is talking about. That radical commitment is similar to what we read of Job when he says, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. Jesus knows all about our secret weaknesses. And so he instructs us on how to not set up ourselves for failure. He tells us not to offer any part of our body to commit sin, but to offer ourselves to him who is able to save us. When I was a high school kid, there was a Christian song that was going on around 
The words went like this. Oh, Lord, don't move that mountain, but give me strength to climb it. Please don't move that stumbling block, but lead me, Lord, around it. So with that advice firmly in hand, I repeatedly put myself in difficult situations where I knew I would probably be tempted, thinking that to do otherwise would be cowardly, it would be a lack of faith. And guess what? I failed every time. God's smarter than whoever wrote that song. I know this matter of sexual purity is a daily battleground for some. Much blood has been spilt. Your salvation has often come to the brink. Do you wonder whether you were saved or not? Whether there was ever any forgiveness again? Despairing. So let me close with some practical suggestions on how to implement Jesus' teaching. Know your weaknesses. Don't put yourself in a difficult situation. Don't assume you can handle everything everyone else can handle. You don't have to worry about them. Know your own limitations. And knowing them, set limits. Back up a safe distance from the point where you know you will have a battle that you can't win. And in your heart and mind, put warning signs up there. Stop. Danger. Do not proceed any further. And then accept your handicapped condition. You may never be able to participate in some things. I have a pastor friend back in New Jersey who says, I will not go to the beach. You've got to understand New Jersey, the Jersey Shore is there, and everybody goes to Jersey Shore all all the time during the summer, and he lives very close. I will not go to the beach. I won't put myself in that situation. I can't handle it. You may be thought a prude, weird, whatever. Get ready to take the heat. You are spiritually handicapped. You must not venture into things you can't handle. And then set a moral sentry in your mind. Learn to ask yourself some questions in advance. What do I know about this situation I'm getting into? Who's going to be there? What company am I keeping? What are the plans? Project yourself into the situation for a moment. What's likely to happen in that situation? And leave yourself a way of escape when you're unsure. And then flee early if necessary. Remember, Joseph, run for your life if necessary. And never forget God's presence. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. So cry out to the Lord and ask for his help. Lord, save me. May God give us all such grace in our weakness. Let's pray. Father, we can talk about this. 
And for some, it probably seems like, why would you waste time on that? It's not a problem. I'm a Christian. And for others, Lord, it is so close to the life and death struggle of the soul that you can't say enough and you can't say it powerfully enough and you can't say it eloquently enough. Lord, you know us. You know where we struggle. We would open our hearts to you this morning and say, look at us. And Lord, uh, make us wise. To, to, to stop the quiet rebellion against you, to stop the quiet adultery which this involves. Of, of falling down before the God of our day which is often good sex. Father, help us. May we intentionally put ourselves on your side, crying out for help when we see the trouble coming, rather than turning away from you and toying with the temptation. Oh, Father, we ask for everyone who has this struggle that you would sustain us, that you would give us victory you would preserve our souls deep in our faith. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.